0: Good morning. It's good to see you. Go ahead and grab a seat. Thanks, Caleb. Appreciate it, buddy. It's good to see you. hope you're having a great morning. It's good to be here. My name is Luke. If we haven't met, we've been going through the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible or an app you're using, go ahead and turn to Exodus 12. That's where we're going to be today. Um, We're going to kind of walk through a muddy passage that's proving to be a problem for a lot of people. I hope it's clear for some of you if you've struggled with this passage in the past. Um, we are going to do the 10th plague today. So if you were here last week, we went through nine of the plagues, and we saw that they were not random plagues, but they were strategic. They had a purpose. God was saying something through those plagues. And we're going to land on one today that is a bit more difficult to swallow for a lot. And this is going to be, in fact, I'll just give you the punchline. This is in verse 29. While you're turning there, Exodus 12:29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Listen, this is a terrifying plague. This is a terrifying moment, and yet it is a very thoughtful moment at the same time. And I know those two terms don't really traffic together at the same time very well for a lot of us. So before we jump into this passage, I just want to look at God's patience for us. And maybe as a preamble to even understand how to even approach a passage like this. Because if we don't, I think we're going to miss it by a mile. I think we'll shoot wide of this passage. This is one of those passages, Exodus 12 and a piece of 13, that we kind of squint our eyes at when we read. Kind of hoping that some of the details aren't as gruesome as they look like they are. These are the the passages that we hope our neighbors who are far from Christ don't ask us about, right? Because we don't really know how to explain God and his character and what he's doing in this moment, right? Now, some of the plagues we looked at last week, um, like frogs, frogs coming up, frogs being everywhere, frogs in the oven, frogs in your bed. That's one of those things that you might, might be able to laugh at in six years, right? Like, hey, remember the time with the frogs? That was crazy, right? This plague will never be funny. This is never just a random plague. In fact, before I met Jesus, before he rescued me, I could only see him as unwholesome here. Disproportionate, maybe, is a good word, for how he would show his judgment and his punishment. It looks like he has no sympathy. It looks like he's made of granite here. It looks like he's killing innocent children, if we could just be frank. It looks like a gruesome passage. And honestly, it's hard to even know how many people were killed in this plague. And even more difficult to ascertain how many lives were ripped apart by a passage like this. Aunts, uncles, grandfathers, people who grieved in a a moment like this. I mean, from the palace to the dungeon, probably to date, this is the worst thing to have ever happened and ever will happen to the nation of Egypt. And Egypt's pretty old. It's been around for a while. And so much was bound up in the firstborn son too. The firstborn son who will be killed if the blood is we're gonna find out is not on the doorpost. There was so much bound up in the firstborn son. Losing a child is unbearable. It's it's a hellish nightmare. Some of you in here have lost children, whether it be through a stillbirth or a miscarriage, or just have lost a child. And it is a nightmare. It's terrifying. It actually, in this society, was also, in addition to those things, crippling economically. I mean, as far as where the legacy of the finances would go, the family business would go, how things would be passed down, would be broken by a plague like this. What I want you to know before we tackle this passage is that God's judgment and God's mercy are held together at the same time by the same heart and the same God. God's anger and his love are at the same time being executed. We don't understand this. We struggle like this because our emotions are broken. We don't don't carry emotions that don't have pieces of the broken fall intermingled in with our emotions. We're made in God's image. We're an emotional people only because we come from an emotional God, right? We we have a hard time seeing God as a God of emotion. He is deep and rich and textured in his emotion, but his emotion does not have sin mingled in with it, which is why a passage like this could be so tough for you and me to understand, because our emotions do do. We're incapable of holding such powerful emotions, especially ones like love and anger at the same time, without them being corrupted in some form. Here, God is not going to show us a picture of overblown anger. He's not throwing a tantrum in this passage. His emotions are perfect and perfectly expressed. wasn't stoic like a statue. He was very emotional in this, yet without sin. And I also want to consider, before we even jump in, how God could have started with this 10th plague. He could have began with the most damaging, intense one, and it would have cut four chapters out of your Old Testament if you just got right to the point and started with this, right? Pharaoh would have let them go almost immediately. But he is patient. So we have 10 plagues, this being the 10th. He's patient, not like us. This is what Peter tells us in 2 Peter when he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, think about it. Even in bringing judgment on Egypt, God was actually preserving Egypt. He was preserving this nation that he's about to reign this horrific, terrifying nightmare of a plague upon, right? Because God is redeeming a nation That will give us Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who will in turn rescue Egyptians. Egypt itself would be gifted by the gospel downstream of this event. Okay? A guy named Nashon was a Jew that was living in this time. Nashon was probably making bricks. He could probably tell you everything you ever wanted to know about how to make a brick, with or without straw. He was alive walking around the streets during this time. And he was also the great-great-grandfather of King David. In 14 generations downwind of King David, we would have Christ who would live, die, and live again, and therefore reach and change the hearts of Egyptians who, 17, 18 generations older, their grandfathers and great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers probably enslaved Jesus' forefathers. And now we have 15 million Christians in Egypt. That's over 10% of the population. And listen, if you know anything about missions, once you get to 10% or exceed 10% of a group um, that would call themselves believers, that is no longer considered an unreached people group in the missions world. So now Egypt is considered a reached people group. Over 10 10 million, 15 million, it's hard to know. Not like they're all walking around with their church's logo on their shirt or have a fish on their car. They don't even take good numbers. Those numbers are really hard to come by, the ones I could find, right? But this plague would preserve the nation that would preserve a bloodline that would yield the Prince of Peace Benefiting the same nation that enslaved his forefathers. Now millions enjoy Jesus. Millions make disciples. There's church planting happening there. There's baptisms. Today, today, right now, there are going to be people that become born again in Egypt. All downwind from this horrific nightmare of an event. So yeah, this is a terrifying passage. Judgment fell hard. But mercy fell abundantly as well. Anger fell hard. But grace was abounding as well. We don't understand these things. It's hard for us to reconcile in our heart what's going on. This is why Paul says in the book of Romans, in Romans 11, stay where you're at. He says, oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Mixed in with this 10th plague is the Passover meal right, Passover, probably one of the more pivotal days in human history, right, we have it in our passage today. Some days cannot be forgotten easily, right, good or bad, you all have them. I remember my first car accident like it was yesterday, right, I was honking at a girl, looking out my passenger window, wasn't paying attention, hit a minivan in front of me, that rolled up and hit the sports car in front of it, right, so I learned how insurance worked better than any other high schooler at my high school. I knew if you needed to know anything about insurance, I could tell you because of that effect. Right. I, I, I remember the, the day I met my wife, right? Walked in, saw her for the first time. My heart kind of stopped. I said, hey, cutie, what are you doing, right? I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember when our, when our church, I remember this church's very first service, right? It was just me and Kevin and our wives sitting on a couch. I remember that. I remember my first funeral that I ever had to do. I remember when we planted a church. There are some days that you just don't forget, good or bad. We all have them, right? But sometimes we have days we forget that are worth remembering. That's why we have the phrase Never forget. Some of you might not be old enough to remember this. Some of you might. But never forget, wasn't really something that we said all the time until after 9-11. That's when everybody was saying it. And I remember right after 9-11, driving down the Loop 289 in Lubbock, Texas, and seeing probably one of the more patriotic moments in our nation's history, maybe since before World War II or after World War II, everyone was just painting it on bed sheets and throwing it over their fence or flying the flags from behind whatever vehicle they were driving. And it always said, never forget, never forget. That's what everybody was saying, T-shirts, coffee mugs, never forget. And I remember thinking, why would they tell me never to forget? Well, because we do. I mean, kind of. I mean, the airline industry recovered. Sports came back. Buildings have been built on those sites right now, right? We can forget. We have to actively remind ourselves or we will actually forget. Maybe we won't forget all the facts of the moment, but we'll forget the feel of the moment. We'll forget the lessons of the moment. We get amnesia. Even in high-value moments, we get amnesia. Today, what we're doing right now is, in effect, a sort of corporate reminder where we tell each other to never forget. Don't forget the gospel. Never forget the story of God. This is what we do in our missional communities. This is what we do when we interact in our, in our DNAs. We, we remind each other. We reminisce before each other. We rehearse the gospel with each other. Never forget. Never forget. Why? Because gospel retelling is probably the most necessary thing we do as a church. The power of God for salvation is wrapped up in the gospel when trusted. And for those far from Jesus, it's the power of life and death. For those of us in Jesus, gospel retelling has the power of growth, Paul says in Romans 16. So reminiscing on God's story is life to all who do it. And it helps us navigate the wilderness that we're in right now. It helps us. It empowers us. Let me tell you what forgetting the gospel Getting that amnesia, having a gospel-forgetful life just leads to a life of anxiety, but just being bored, a life of anger. It's exhausting to live life as if the gospel is not true. Just run in circles, right? I mean, how many of you are thankful for the You Are Here maps, whether you're in Manhattan or Philadelphia or on a trail somewhere, to have a map that says You Are Here. I love those maps. I need those maps, Right? Walk up to it, and what's the first thing we all do? Look for the red dot. Map doesn't even make sense without the red dot. Look for the red dot. I remember many, many moons ago, I think they've changed all the signs since then, but in the Iams urban uh, wilderness, that trail system, they used to have these you are here maps, you know, interspersed throughout the whole, I don't know how many acres there is out there. And I remember running around out there and some joker took all the red dots off. He just, just rubbed or pulled all the red dots off. And I remember being so tired, just so, so excited to see one of these maps. And I roll up on these maps and I'm just looking at a map of the wilderness. I don't, there's no, I don't even know where I'm at. There's no red dot, right? So I, I mean, I'm not a Navy SEAL, like, any more than any of you are, so I don't, know what, I don't know how to read the land. I mean, all the trees look the same. So I thought, well, this trail looks good. So an hour later, I come right back to the same sign. I'm obviously lost. I need the red dot. We all need the red dot. But even if you had the red dot and you didn't even know where you were going, how is that any more helpful? You're just going to be tired. You might get somewhere, but where? This is what it's like to live a life of gospel forgetfulness. You don't know where you're at. You don't know where you're going. But you're bored and you're really tired. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Well, this is a day that God does not want them to forget. And after this, many people are going to celebrate Passover. But over time, Passover starts to lose its soul a little bit. It becomes more mechanical for every generation that comes after this. And by the time Jesus is walking around, it's a little bit of a shell of what it used to be. Kind of like the 4th of July is for us, by the way, right? I mean, I hope you had a great 4th of July. I had a blasted 4th of July. Hot dog in one hand. Somebody was blasting a Spotify playlist of nothing but America songs, right? And I'm looking up into the sky, and I'm thinking about just a moment. Let me tell you what I wasn't thinking about. Ben Franklin, King George III, you know, the Declaration of Independence. I wasn't thinking about that stuff, and neither were you. You weren't thinking about it either, were you? You were all thinking the same thing I was. That mortar was really cool, but how much did it cost, right? Weren't you all doing that? How much was that mortar? That was really cool. I wonder how much it is if you buy it the day after the 4th of July. That's what I was thinking. How much is it right now if I were to go out and buy one? No one's thinking about the 4th of July. So when Jesus enters the picture, walks around, and celebrates Passover, hear me, when he has the last supper with his disciples on Passover, it's finally going to make sense. He's refreshing this memorial and he's putting it into perspective and he's dropping it right where it needs to be, right before them so they see what God is doing. It's like he was showing up and wiping the dirt and the dust off of an old plaque so that finally people can read it. That's what he's doing in the Last Supper. Even today we have heavy practitioners of the Passover. Listen, we have three synagogues within three miles of this building right here. People who believe Passover rests in what God did through Moses, not what God has done through Jesus. And they celebrate the mechanics of Passover and they do it accurately, right? But it's like celebrating a perfect Super Bowl party and denying that there was ever even a game. But Passover is of high value. It creates the background where we will understand Jesus, the blood and the body, the cross, and the tomb, and it has the power to edit your satisfaction, your sanity, your boredom, your exhaustion, your anxiety, your anger. It has the power to do that, right? Let's look at Exodus 12. Let's jump in. We're not going to read all of the two chapters, but we're going to jump around to the main points that I want you to see This is how it starts off, 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. A lamb for a household. Okay, pause for a moment. What he's doing right here is he is hard baking this day into their brand-new calendar. He just recreated their calendar. He doesn't want them to forget, right? It's as if God dropped in and said, all right, starting over, happy new year. I know, it's just July 11th, but happy new year. And then we all go out and buy mortars, hopefully at half price, right? <laughs> we get good fireworks. But this is it. Every time we would hit July 11th and it would be New Year's, we would have to just kind of think for a moment, oh, oh yeah, it's, it's meant to not be forgotten. And he's actually recreating their calendar around this. Look at verse 4. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw. Or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Okay, listen, this sounds weird, all of this. It is, it is weird. Come on, this is weird. What's going on in this passage? They've eaten lamb before. I'm sure that's not weird. I'm sure they've been in a hurry when they've eaten lamb. So eating it get in haste. I'm sure that's not weird. But can you tell how inconvenient this is? They're having to really think through this. This isn't just a casual meal you're throwing together. There's some boxes that have to be checked in order to do this well, right? And by the way, before I even get too far from this, this is probably one of the greatest forecasts of Christ in your entire Old Testament right here. This is it. This is a centerpiece. Over a dozen centuries before Jesus cries out in a manger, before shepherds who took care of lambs, this passage would elude that he himself will be the Lamb of God for you and me. Which is what John the Baptist says in the book of John, stay where you're at, but whenever he sees Jesus cruising across the street, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul tells the Corinthian church, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Even Isaiah says, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. Listen, God is not picking a random animal here. (laughs) For a random reason. God is setting the table for a much larger Passover where a better lamb would be totally consumed and have his blood applied not to the doorposts of the homes we live in, but into the very edges and the pillars of our own heart. This is a picture of the gospel for us today. Which is why Jesus, in his final Passover on earth, the Last Supper, says do this in remembrance of me. He's redefining a meal that was set over a thousand years earlier. He's totally redefining it. I mean, even with the bitter herbs, right? It, that's, to, that's to commemorate the, the 430 years of slavery and how bitter those were. So whenever they ate chicory root or dandelion or whatever it was bitter back then, I mean, they were supposed to eat it and arr, arr, yeah, those were some rough years, right? Those were some bitter years. That's what that was supposed to do, the unleavened bread. That's actually, there's two, there's a double meaning in that. But one of them is that the bread would have to be made so quickly because there's no time to let it rise. It's not going to rise over time. There's no yeast in it. It's an action-oriented meal. That's what you're supposed to see. Belt on, shoes on, staff in hand. We're consuming it all tonight, making it in a hurry, eating it in a hurry. It's an action-oriented meal. But why? What's about to happen? Why Why all the rush. Why the haste? Because in hours, they're going to be heading towards the sea. The exodus is beginning. Their hope is no longer deferred, right? No more waiting. Look at verse 12 and 13. Those are going to be big passages for us or big verses for us. I'm going back one. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no, blood or no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, so God is going to send a destroying angel to end the firstborn of every household. Again, like the other plagues, not random not random. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, remember, he destroyed Israel's sons trying to destroy Israel. You'll remember that. That's why Moses was shoved in a basket and pushed down a river. Pharaoh had already tried this with Israel. Now God is going to execute wrath on Egypt's sons. And God's going to pass from place to place. Some doors would have blood on it. Some wouldn't. And the blood on the door, by the way, is is not just like like an X on the door or a highlighter or, hey, flip your light on to let God know not to do anything crazy. It's to show that judgment had already fallen. It it, had just what? Fallen on a lamb. That's why that blood is up there. It's to show that judgment had already been executed. And that's going to be important for us because later on we're going to see the blood of Jesus on our hearts shows that the lamb also took the judgment aim for us. Listen, this is also not a situation where God does not know which houses to go to and which ones he does not know to go to. And so he's really hoping that people remember to put blood on the door so he knows not to mess up and go into the wrong house. That's not what God, he doesn't need any information. He needs no map. He needs no roster or database to do this. What he's doing, this is a moment of trust and obedience for the Jews. Re- remember, all the plagues up until this point, they've been Passively saved. Like a plague would fall on 1st Avenue and not 2nd Avenue. They just, because of the fact that their nation, as the Jews, had a covenant with God, they were just passively saved. Here, they're having to step into obedience. They're moving into this part of the plague that God would save them. right, passively saved, now they're actively saved. So Moses is going to go on and he's going to repeat all these instructions to the elders to be carried out, but there's a couple thoughts I want you and me to look at. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 of chapter 12. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians, he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Okay. This day of remembrance was to be told to the world. Not just their children, by the way. Let's not miss a real, there's a, there's, a, there's a cool part of this passage in verse 38. It says that a mixed multitude also went up with them who joined the Israelites. These are Gentiles. These are non-Jews. It wasn't just Jews that walked through the Red Sea. It wasn't just Jews that were passed over. There were people that trusted and believed in the God of the Jews and they also were swept up into this, Right? They believed and were passed over. It's a substitute's blood that brings mercy, not a bloodline. It's a substitute's blood. So, again, we said this a couple weeks ago. Mission didn't begin in the New Testament. It's not starting in the Great Commission or on the day of Pentecost. God has always been on mission to redeem his cosmos and his creation, always, right? And this is another example of that. So with lambs consumed, doorposts painted with blood, and everybody ready to depart, judgment falls. Judgment falls. Look at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Okay, I just want you to imagine the outcry here. Just the national outcry. Every household where judgment did not fall on a lamb, it fell on a sun. Every person who trusted in a river or a moon or a cat or whatever idol was sitting on their mantle place, every person who trusted in a false god found that those gods would be silent and powerless and not helping them in this moment. Imagine how fed up. The people of Egypt were with Pharaoh and this little war he declared against Moses. This little back and forth thing that just would not go away. Their whole nation is in rubble. They have no crops left. They have no cattle left. Everything's a mess and now their sons are gone. Let them go. For crying out loud, just let them go. Let them go. And that's what he does. That's what he does. Look at chapter 13, verse 14. We'll see what happens next. And when in time and when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubborn, stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males let the first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or front between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Okay, this is what's happening. He's saying never forget. You keep catching the same theme. If you read those two chapters over and over again, you keep saying he is trying to iron this in, nail it into their memory banks forever, never to be deleted, never forget. Never forget, never forget, never forget that blood covered us from judgment. Never forget that the lamb had to be totally consumed. Never forget that small gods don't save. Never forget, and listen, this is still the big idea for us today, because we easily forget these things. We have amnesia, as we've already seen. We fail to reminisce well. I mean, when life just does what life does, When you're bored or horrified or gravely disappointed, when your life feels like you're just making bricks every single day and that's just the way it's going to be, never forget that God is good and he's kind and he's strong. Never forget that he's a promise maker. Never forget that he is a promise keeper. When you feel dirty and you feel ashamed, never forget that God is drawn to his people in love. Never forget that he is present. Never forget that he is a family man. He loves his kids. When you feel alone and scared, never forget that he knows and he understands and he hears the pains of your heart that you cannot even utter with words. When you struggle with temptation, never forget that he understands that he too is tempted. Never forget that He gives us the power to walk through that. When you're in a crisis of belief, never forget that He is patient. He's patient as you wrestle through that. He's good and He's caring, and even when we are faithless, He is faithful. When you trust false gods, never forget that He will expose them in silence. He will strategically break them down for your good, for your good. Never forget when you have taskmasters, that God is unbeatable, that God will not be denied, that God is not insecure, that God is not intimidated. If I don't remember and grow in my fascination over the gospel, if I don't gospel reminisce, if I don't think upon these things, I just get bored. I get bored with life. I run in circles. I get real anxious. I get hair-trigger angry. I don't see the point. We all suffer so much because we just have forgotten who God is and what he has done. And this is what unbelief is. Unbelief that God is the same God that we're reading about here in Exodus, that's where our anxiety comes from. When we forget that God is this God, that's where our anger comes from. That's where our boredom comes from, our insecurity. We suffer so much when we just reduce God to a relic, when he just becomes a hood ornament in our life. Not not one to be celebrated in the small moments as much as the big ones, as we remember, as we memorialize. But friends, listen, we have a better Passover to reminisce over, to remind each other of. We have a far better Passover. We have a lamb with no blemishes, no broken bones, who is totally and completely consumed, whose blood covers our hearts so the judgment would be exhausted on another for our benefit, that death would not ever touch us. And this changes everything. It changes everything. It edits our entire existence. Because now, not only are we free from destruction, we're empowered. We're a people living on the move. We're an action-oriented people, right, with no leaven among us. See, that's the second meaning. I said there was two. There's a double meaning to the, the yeast, the leaven, right? The second one is that leaven, we'll find out in the New Testament, is a representative, or yeast, rather, is a representative of sin. This is what Jesus would be saying when he talked to his disciples in Matthew. He says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They've got a sin. What he's saying is this. They've got a sin in them, and it acts like a cancer It eats away at everything. It's small. You don't see it. You don't catch it in the moment, but it grows, and it gets root, and it just starts wrecking everything. It ruins everything. Beware of it. Beware of it. That's what he's telling them. Paul says the same thing twice. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says it to two different churches. All it takes is a little bit. He's saying there's no time to be held down by sin. Savor Jesus, but savor him in a readied position, in a forward position. Posture, constantly reminded, constantly reminiscing on what God has done. This is why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. They're all saying the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. Some of us are so entangled and bored and full of heavy emotions over our life. Some of us have so many small gods that we've placed trust in. Whether it's our job or security or money or identity or friends or appearance, gosh, it's an endless list. Just hear me. God will judge those gods before your eyes, right before your eyes. God will judge and he will break down piece by piece those small gods that we put all of our trust in. And when he does so, it's not a cruelty to you, it's a grace to you. I've had things broke off my life that at the time it hurt so bad. It 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 felt like he was being mean and disproportionate, and he was bringing me life at the same time. Lay the weight aside. Don't return to the same slavery that you used to be in. He's saying never forget, reminisce, be fascinated, adore the God of Exodus as he adores us. Listen, I know I say this phrase every sermon. It's not because I'm a horrible public speaker. It's because I believe it. And I think it's important for us to know that there is room to repent in a passage like this. There's space. I think, and I say that in every sermon because I think every passage offers that. There's not a passage in your Bible that does not offer space, room for us to repent, for us to say, yes, God. And here's another opportunity. Right? We don't look for leaven in our lives. We don't look for the yeast in our lives. We forget. We do forget. We don't reminisce. And then we begin to accuse. We'll accuse God and we'll accuse those around us. And we're going to see that in future chapters. But we have room to repent for not being ready. For finding a satisfaction in this life, wrapped up in the small gods. Listen, ask the Holy Spirit to awaken your heart Ask the Holy Spirit to grow your fascination in the gospel. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you a deep fascination in the gospel and see if the fat paycheck has the same allure. It won't. Ask ask God, ask his Holy Spirit to intoxicate you over what he has done for you and me. See if pornography has the same draw. It won't. Ask God to ruin you for anything else besides him, and see if anxiety still hoards your, 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 your emotions, hoards your day. It won't. Ask the Holy Spirit to move in your life and show you and remind you and help you see with a deepening color and a deepening clarity what God has done for us. Never forget. Never forget. And I'll just say, I think this kind of reminder, this kind of reminiscence is best in plurality. It's best in groups, right? You, you can't remind yourself of something you don't remember. <laughs> That's the way it works, right? We remind other people of what we think they are forgetting. That's how it works. I can't, I, if I don't remember it, I can't remind myself of it. That's the power of walking with other men, other women. When you're in tight relationships with other people, sometimes they are going to see something and remind you of something you just can't see in the moment. It's very helpful. I'll tell you what, one of my biggest fears when the pandemic started to wane, I know we're not totally out of it yet, or maybe we are. I don't know. I hear different things all the time. But as we were starting to exit the worst of it, I guess we could say that. It wasn't my biggest fear that people, would say yeah man i went into the pandemic you know i went into quarantine as a christian and i came out an atheist you know i I wasn't really fearful of that i knew it'd be a dark season for a lot of people it'd be tough it was right it's tough for a lot of us one of my biggest fears though is that we had begun to build a diet on solo gatherings right and even right now you're starting to see it starting to see all the studies and the, the reports over what's called friend recession that's the new term for being lonely now. It's a friend recession. You're welcome for that. I've just seen it a lot. A lot of people just wonder, maybe God is still God, but maybe community just isn't worth it. I've done fine with YouTube. I've done fine just dialing in and just watching a sermon. I'm not so sure I need to show up on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or a Tuesday night or a Saturday. I'm just not so sure I need community anymore solo gatherings. That was my biggest fear, right? Because guess what happens in that? Cannot be reminded. Cannot be reminded and you easily forget. Listen, if you're watching this online or you were here and you are not a believer, maybe you're a skeptic, we'll call you Christ haunted or else you wouldn't have watched this far or sat through this so much. I'd just say the blood will be required The angel of death still roams, okay? Judgment will either fall on you or it will fall on the lamb. But judgment's going to fall. It'll either be satisfied in Christ or that justice will be satisfied on your head. That's true. That's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And you're going to hear the story next week of the Red Sea, probably one of the most epic stories in your Bible. But Jesus didn't make it through the Red Sea of destruction. He was consumed by the earth for us, right? It will be either his blood that covers our sin or we will be devoured. So my submission is that you trust Christ today. That it just doesn't become a story, but it's a story mingled with faith. I'm going to pray for you in a moment that the Holy Spirit would change your heart to receive a message like that with trust, with faith. That you see not just his grandeur, but the delta between you and him and your desperate need. That's what we're going to pray for, is that you would become a Christian even today. And before we stand up and take communion together, the point of celebration is there is going to be a day of no leaven. No rushing around no hidden sin, no bitter herbs. It's a day without end. We don't have sin, and we'll be celebrating in a land with no end. Until then, we have today, and we have each other, to never forget. Never forget. I mean, never forget. Just reminisce. Think. Meditate. Remind each other. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to your spouse. Think about what God has done. Never forget. Go ahead and stand with me. Let's let's pray over this and exit this part of the sermon. And what we're going to do is we're going to take communion now. If someone can go get that, just in case people missed it on the way in. Communion is something we do as a church family. If you are not part of Legacy and would like to take communion with us, more than welcome to do so. We'd love to have you do that. If you're not a Christian, this is something that I don't want you to worry about doing. This is something that we do as a church family, more like a family meal that we take together. And this is going to be something that I would want you to take the time instead and consider Christ. Consider the better Passover lamb and what he has done for you. And think upon some of the things that I have said so far. Caleb, I'm going to need one of those too, buddy. I I failed to grab one on the way in. And when we take this today, this is an opportunity for us to, thanks bud. It's an opportunity for us to think about the Last Supper where Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. This isn't Passover. We're not celebrating Passover. We're celebrating a better Passover, the ultimate, the uber Passover in what God has done. He's passed over us because of the blood of the better lamb over our hearts. As justice was exhausted, wrath and punishment was exhausted on the lamb, the better lamb for our benefit at his cost. So We're celebrating the gospel in a very appropriate way today with communion. So, Father, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for being good to us and kind. And you don't want us to just reorient our calendars to make space for reminding ourselves and reminiscing over what you have done. You don't want us to just rearrange our calendar. You want us to rearrange our lives where it's the salt of our speech It's the front of our mind. It's It's the beginning of our thoughts and the end of our thoughts. It's the beginning of our conversations and the end of our conversations. It's the anchor of our checkbook. It's the anchor of our calendar. Our whole lives revolving what you have done. Lord, help us never forget. Never forget. So Lord, we take this bread and we do this in remembrance of you who broke yourself broke yourself, a body fully consumed, in haste. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us on the cross, and we take this bread in remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the bread. And Lord, as we approach the, the juice, it's just a symbol of a judgment received. Judgment fell on you, and your blood was put on our hearts. I stand here today as someone untouched by the angel of death. (laughs) And even when I die, I'll never die. And that is not because I have merit in me. It's because of what you have done for me. And all of us in here who are God-fearing, Christ-loving Christians are able to say, the angel of death did not touch me, will not touch me. That meant that that judgment fell on another, the true Lamb of God. So we do this in remembrance of you, Jesus. Go ahead and take the the juice. So, Lord, as we celebrate and as we sing and as we pray and as we give and as we laugh and as we eat together, as we do all the things you had intended for the people of God to enjoy together, we enjoy you. We do this in remembrance of you. So, Father, we're so thankful. And I just pray, Lord, that there would be room for us to repent, that you would challenge us with where we have small gods, and then challenge us with where we have just had amnesia. We're running in circles, bored and exhausted. And that this would be a moment, Lord, that we would give that back to you. And, Father, I pray for those who are Christ-haunted, who suspect that there is something bigger, suspect that there is something grander. They suspect that what they're doing is not good enough. Lord, that you would change their heart and that your blood would cover the pillars and the doorposts of even their own soul. We pray for that conversion even today. Lord, that you would grab them and ruin them from anything else besides you. So, Lord, we pray these things because you're good and you're strong and you're kind and you're thoughtful and you're gentle and you're sweet and you're present. So, God, we say we will never forget as a church. We will sing as a people not forgetting. Give, volunteer, eat, party, celebrate, be on mission as a people who do not forget. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.